0: You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. This week, our guest is James Wade, curator and architectural historian at the Longwood House Museum in Natchez, Mississippi. Welcome, James. Hello. Thank you for being here.
0: Uh, Yes, it's a very convenient way of doing it with technology and all.
1: (laughs) Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do?
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, i'm sort of in my third incarnation. I started off as a historian. I went to become an arch- then I became an archivist, and then I moved from that into uh, historic preservation.
1: Okay, so your early education and experiences in library science, like you said, arch- archivists and stuff yeah. like that, when you got you started with that, how did you get from that to preservation to what you're doing now?
0: I kind of saw it as just a logical leap. Well, I was working for the LSU. Can I say who I was working for? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was working for the LSU uh, Law Library as their rare books librarian. And, you know, I was still technically just a library associate because to be a a full librarian at a law school library, you have to get a law degree. And I wasn't about to do that. Uh, It would have been a a waste. It would have been a waste of time. Uh, So uh, I, I started looking around for preservation programs. And, you know, I chanced across Tulane and went there and, you know. Many wild adventures ensued and worked for the, uh, well, worked there and then came uh, came into uh, Natchez about five years ago, uh, working for the Garden Club. I know, I'm now a member of the Garden Club.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're the ones that take care of the Longwood House. Right. right? Right. Well, Natchez has a long
0: history with Garden Clubs going back to the 1930s and pilgrimage. And originally there was one Garden Club and then they split in the late 1930s over money, uh, as is typical. Uh, Harnett Cain wrote about it and called it the War of the Petticoats. (laughs) So now there are two garden clubs in Natchez. Uh, The one I work for is the Pilgrimage Garden Club, and there's also the Natchez Garden Club. Now the Pilgrimage Garden Club has uh, two main structures. They have um, Longwood, which is the wonderful one, and Stanton Hall, which I like to call the White Elephant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is also the Natchez Garden Club, which has Oh my goodness, what's in that house? It's not... It'll come to me. You know, senility attacks. They also have the um, <laughs> house on Elkett Hill, which is, you know, an, a very old colon- colonial era structure. Kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of New Orleans Creole architecture.
1: Well, we can talk a little bit more about that when we get down to uh, what I remember, <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you remember when we get down to to really get into the details about about Longwood. But uh, I'd like to go back and talk about your involvement with the Louisiana Landmark Society, which is a a local group here in New Orleans. and they, I, I've talked about them, I think, a little bit on previous podcast episodes, but haven't gone into too much detail about, like, exactly, kind of what they do. And um, uh, besides talking about the Petot House, which is, that's just because I I worked there for a while. So <laughs> um, did I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us what the Louisiana uh, Louisiana Landmark Society is and what they do?
0: They are a nonprofit organization that advocates for historic preservation in the city of New Orleans. Now, part of their, their advocacy is, in fact, the operation of the Petot House, and that's a house they saved in the early 1960s, almost well, no, a while ago now, over 50 <laughs> years ago now. And it's an interesting house built around, let's say, 1799. We're not exactly certain. There's some debate. But, but primarily, I don't know, it's been a while since I've been active with them. It's, you know, they're focusing most on advocacy and just using the Hot house as as kind of an adjunct and an office area. Mm -hmm. And they have events there and things like that. They do programs, but their current activities I couldn't really speak on because I have, I'm not, I'm out of the loop. Okay.
1: Well, I know they still, they still do the New Orleans Nine, which is the nine most endangered sites. They do that every year. Um,
0: Sadly, some of them repeat.
1: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And then, so the Petot House, I- I'm trying to remember from when I was there, I don't, I had the whole tour memorized, but it's been <laughs> a long time since, since I've had to give the tour, but they moved it, right? Wasn't it a little bit further over and then they moved it to build the high school? Isn't that correct? Well,
0: the Petot House where it was originally built, it was almost at the foot of the, br- it was at the foot of the bridge going across Bio St. John. Okay. Um, I don't remember the name of that old iron bridge, but, you know, that one. The one's the pedestrian only. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was sitting on that property. And then the, the Cabrini sisters uh, decided their educational efforts. And to do that, they needed to build a new campus because uh, they opened up a, a girl's school, I think, in 1960. And it was... It, it just was an overwhelming success, and they needed to expand rapidly. So they were going to tear down the Petot House and move it uh, – well, just destroy it, really. Right. L- Louisiana Network Society said, no, this would be horrible. It's an important house in New Orleans history, and let's try to save it. Well, they saved as much of it as they could because – it was typical in Creole construction. The ground floor is, was all masonry, you can't move that,
2: mm-hmm. but the upper
0: floor was brick uh, between posts and they were able to just lift up the upper floor, put it on some rollers. They moved it over about a hundred yards and built a new ground floor under it. So the Petot House as you see it today is uh, about half of the original one.
1: Right. And they used, they added some things to it because they do events there. You know, they have bathrooms and like a, a full kitchen because it wasn't the original caretaker of the house. Didn't they live there full time? Like once it was moved and oh, it yeah. was under had, the, the Louisiana Landmark Society.
0: They had a uh, live in caretakers for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think well into the nineties. Oh, 20 okay. Years.
1: Okay. I didn't realize it was quite that, that long. Yeah,
0: they went through a series of them.
1: Okay. So w- when you did work there, uh, I know you can't really talk about what they're doing right now, but what kind of things did you do when you were working for the organization? Besides tours, I remember you doing the tours, but um, yes, what else I did. did you do?
0: I did the tours. I did, uh, you know, the first thing I did, I started working with them with for my internship at Tulane, and I was uh, archi- preparing their records for archiving. Mm-hmm and I went through the records they had in the house to add to the collection that already exists in the Southeastern Architectural Archives. So I prepared that. They were basically all done by the time the uh, SEA got them. And uh, I did research, and I wrote a book about the house, and it's still available. Yay, my first book. My second book I'm still working on, it's just getting around to writing the, writing the thing. Uh, I've done the research, and I'm trying not to get distracted by doing more research. But uh, <laughs> as, as follows my... Uh, pattern i seem to be writing a book about wherever i work mm-hmm. so um, my new one's on, gonna be on longwood but when i was working at the beat out house i did basically everything you know sales i didn't do any heavy planning but i was the i was their correspondent secretary i ran the newsletter for a while i uh, did tours of course helped with events you know you name it i probably did it yeah it's I- typical for a volunteer organization though so
1: Oh, yeah. You kind of have to wear a lot of hats when when you work for a place like that because they always just kind of need all hands on deck
2: for, yes, for different things. They do. Things. <laughs> they do. They do.
1: I, I think one of the only things that I never really did when I was there was I, I was never involved in any of the events. Like I never helped with weddings or anything like that. But I certainly gave tours and I certainly did the, the vino on the bayou that they still do. Yes. Uh, I was I was – asked so many questions about wine that I had no idea what the answers were.
0: <laughs> it tastes good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't really like the red ones. You should stick to the white ones. Uh, yeah. Uh, but th- that was when Susan was, was there, was the director.
0: Right. I went from, uh, oh, God, what was his name? Susan. And then the next one was with National Trust in New Orleans. So, oh, well, another senility tag. It'll come to me. <laughs>
1: Well, if it pops in your head later, we can always go back to it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, now it's up in Philadelphia. Oh, well. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I honestly, I don't remember after, after Susan was kind of my anchor for the, for the whole group. I'm hoping to maybe interview some current people over there and get them on a future podcast, hopefully. Because I think it's, it's such a great group and there's like not that much focus on it you always hear about the prc and the vcc and some of those other ones and i think the landmark society often gets overlooked even though they do they do a lot of good stuff and they have so. a
0: long history
1: yeah yeah that's uh, true
0: no well, you know okay uh, remember casey stewart he was related, mm-hmm. he was in the organization for a long time i don't know if he's still on the board chuck berg who's also an MPS alum uh, graduate was mm-hmm. is worked with it uh, so yeah, you know, there's some other people you could talk to
1: Oh yeah. I'm trying to get Chuck on here too. Maybe someday (laughs) I have a whole list of people that I'm (laughs) reaching out to. So let's, let's move forward a little bit and talk about what you're currently doing. So you're currently the curator and architectural historian at the Longwood House Museum, which is in Natchez, which we talked about. Yes. Can you start by telling us some of the history of the house because it has a really interesting story, and I'm not sure if a lot of people uh, know about it.
0: Where do we start? We start with I guess Samuel Sloan in 18. He's a Philadelphia architect, really the celebrity architect of the 1850s, 1850s and 1860s. He writes a series of little pamphlets that originally get bound into full books called The Model Architect, and. In the model architect, there are two designs. There's a model, uh, there's a design 18 and a design 49. And both of these are called Oriental Villas. Now, fast forward a few years, the children of Holler and Julia Nutt, the man who would go on to build Longwood, are in finishing school, the two eldest daughters are, are in finishing school in Philadelphia. And of course, Sloan is the fashionable architect. The Nuts were obviously planning to increase the size of the house they had in Natchez. What The house they had was an older house. Well, it had been built in the 1820s. Uh, we don't know a lot about it because we have no illustrations, but it was too small for their needs, so they wanted to build something larger. And they came across, you know, they came across Sloan's works, which they were everywhere, basically, and they set upon the design 49, which was an octagonal-shaped house, also in the Oriental Villa series. Well, they decided on that one, and they decided to build it in Natchez. And what I say about Longwood is that timing is everything. Mm-hmm. They decided to begin—they wrote, Sa- wrote a letter to Samuel Sloan on Christmas Eve, 1859. They wrote that, we have decided to start Bantle Villa. Uh, and Mr. Sloan you know, comes down from Philadelphia and comes to uh, meet with the nuts here in Natchez, spends about a week here. They, go over, they went over the plans, and they ended up making the house larger. The house is current is um, well it's, I forget how exactly what the dimensions are, but it grew it, at the original design you know the central rotunda was eighteen feet across well, after the nuts got through with it, the central rotunda was twenty four feet across, so it sort of grew in proportion in proportion. they added two floors to it they took away the minarets, which i think is kind of a, a good idea but um <laughs> Anyway, so they start getting ready to build. Uh, Sloan goes back to Philadelphia with all these ideas, and he drafts a set of plans. And the plans, he sends, he sends, down, send them, sends them down to uh, In by March of 1860. And well, by this time, Mr. Nutt had already started getting ready to build. I mean, from 1857 to 1858, they had remodeled the existence uh, dependency at, well, one of the dependencies, at the old Longwood house. To make it a suitable residence for the family while the new one was being constructed, and we still ha- we have that building. That's where my office is actually. It's like it now has it's a four-story structure if you count the attic. Uh, it's it's not small in and of itself. And he hires he lays out the brickyard. We know he laid out the brickyard by February 12, 1860. And then he hired, which is kind of interesting about this house. He didn't get his own slaves to make the bricks. He hired a local brick mason. Who, who's a long, was a long, was a third-generation Natchez brick mason named Benjamin Fox, and he made the bricks. And they made, we don't know exactly how many they made. We estimate there are about three quarters of a million bricks in the house itself. In wow. the house itself, Julia Nutt's testimony after the Civil War that the Union Army took away about four hundred thousand bricks. So they made a million and a half, two million bricks. And that was not just for the main house. It was also for a planned kitchen and a stable. Mm -hmm. So it would have had a, a whole complex, but those were never even completed, or never even begun, actually. And, you know, Mr. Nutt writes to Sloan saying, well, you know, the people we have down here, they can't really handle some of the complexities of this design. Could you send some people down to show them what to do? And Mr. Sloan sends about four master brick masons and two master carpenters. He also sends his chief draftsman, Mr. Addison Hutton, to, who later becomes an architect of his own, to supervise the construction. Well, the nuts sort of start shielding and shilling around. They want to change this, change that. They're always changing the plans, which is things, too, you learn about building. Change orders will kill you. And whereas Mr. Sloan said, well, with this set of plans, we can have the building finished by May of 1861. It wasn't.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it,
0: it still isn't, to give away the secret. The house was never completed. The Civil War starts, and of course, when the Civil War starts, the workmen from the north, well, they didn't want to stay in Mississippi, so they left. One of them, one man came back. He was the tinsmith. smith. was a tinsmith. He was working on the dome, and he said he wanted to make sure it was done properly. So he snuck back through the battle lines, finished the dome, and then went back north. So he was, you know, he lives in September. And at this point, the house is a shell. I mean, the exterior is printed, is done. Uh, that Most of the exterior trim's in place. The final plaster coating on the walls was never done. But on the inside, it's just bare. Well, they're beginning to work on the inside on the upper, uppermost floors, but you know nothing on the main habitation levels. And the Nut family, when well, they were living in the, the dependency uh, behind the house, you know, they were just waiting. Well, oh, you know, we'll think this is going to be a very quick war. It'll be over in a few months, and um, we can get back to building. In they realized this isn't going to be a quick war. Uh, and they have local people from Natchez, uh, local craftsmen. They just simply do a simple plaster finish on the basement walls. They make, they, you know, put the windows and doors in, finishing pieces like mantelpieces. Some of those they had salvaged from the original Longwood house in Natchez, bought or, well, or got from, never actually paid for. But anyway, that's another story. There are a lot of stories with Longwood. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the house is never, you know, they never, and, you know, of course, the Civil War, ruined the family finances. And to top it off, Holler Nutt himself died in um, June of 1864. So he never saw the house finished. When Mr. Nutt died in 1864, he left his wife, Julia, with, you know, all the family plantations are in ruins. The uh, house is unfinished. She has eight children, the youngest being one years old. Wow. and There's no income. Now, this gets away from the house, but, you know, Julia's story itself is rather fascinating because she she survives. I mean, Julia continues to live in the house until her death in 1897. So the house actually stayed in the Nutt family until 1968, and then it was uh, restored, and it was given to us in in 1970. I probably just skipped over a whole bunch of the Longwood story, but come see the house. It's much more impressive anyway.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's really neat. It really is. Uh,
0: As I tell people, you know, even though this is sort of my profession, all these antebellum homes start to look alike to me. Mm. And then there's Longwood, and it's completely unlike anything else. I mean, it's it's got an onion dome on the top of it. It's 126 feet tall. It's, you know, it's vaguely Moorish, although, as the docent legend likes to say, because When Mr. Sloan designed the Oriental Villa, he said it was supposed to invoke the feelings of the buildings of Damascus or Constantinople. Well, as far as we know, Samuel Sloan never went to Damascus or Constantinople. They were buildings he'd never seen. Mm -hmm. So he did what he normally did. And he finally admits to this in his article on the house in Homestead Architecture in 1861. He said, well, what the house is basically a big, you know, it's sort of got a, it's basically Italianate with. A few little Moorish details added on for uh, local, for color. And he said the onion dome itself was just a flight of fancy. He said he liked the way it looked. He thought it looked good in the South. Said, okay, it's got an onion dome on it. (laughs) It it serves no practical, well, I mean, it it is a practical, it's a practical purpose. I mean, it holds up the roof, but uh, it, you know, it could have been any shape, but he decided to make it an onion dome and it, it looks fantastic, at least on the outside.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's harder to tell from the outside that it's not finished on the inside. No, at least actually, to me, anyway.
0: It is. It it really surprises people. Um, you know, I'm used to it because I know. Okay, these windows are boarded up. You'll see that. But you know, when you're driving up the wind, the windows that we have open are, or and doorways actually that are are really in recess, deeply recessed verandas and. You can't really tell. And then you, you go into the basement and say, Oh, this is nice. Everyone's surprised that it's you know, that we call it the basement because they're used to basements being underground, but you know, that's what Sloane called it and that's what we call it. And then when you take them upstairs, the it's the oh my god moment when mm-hmm. they go out into the rotunda and look up, because that runs up ninety feet and it's all open.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Of course, there's a reason for that. Mr. Sloan designed Longwood to have, you know, passive cooling and The first year I was there, I did a um, year-long study of temperature and humidity in the house. Well, humidity in the basement. I did the entire house just while I was doing it. And I found that the temperature difference between the primary floor of the rotunda and the observatory level, which is the highest easily accessible one, it's the sixth floor, it's over a 25-degree temperature difference in the middle of summer. So when you open the one window that we can open up there... (laughs) You can feel the wind pouring out of that house. Mm-hmm. I've, done it a, I've done it on a cool day, and it's feel, like you're standing in a heater vent because it's just hot air coming out of the house and blowing into the outside. So it, it would have worked very well, but we we never really know. To, we can never really fully test it, at least not for a while.
1: Right, because there's no at at this point there's no plan to ever finish it. Right, it's going to stay in this sort of halfway done. Uh, that's the goal right or it's
0: it's good to stay the way it is the gentleman who bought the house from the nut family in 1968 uh, mr. Kelly McAdams part of the stipulation on the deed of gift was that Longwood cannot be finished he said the workmanship displayed in the unfinished section of the house cannot be matched today well that was 1968 but you know it still holds true Mm -hmm. and he's right I mean, it's technically impossible. I mean, we could technically never finish Longwood. As I like to say, to On tours, we don't have the plans. Oh, we do have a set of floor plans. Those are from that first set Mr. Sloan de- sent down in March of 1860, and that is all. Mr. Sloan's papers were lost in the 1950s, and with the destruction of his office papers, we lost the final drawings for the house, unless there's some floating around out there that we don't know about. But... We know that included with the final drawings, there were six volumes of drawings that were detailing the interior trim. Wow. So you can imagine that this would be a house that would have been fitted with very elaborate interior woodwork, mm-hmm. extremely elaborate interior plasterwork. And we don't have any idea what any of it was going to look like. So you really can never finish the house.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's really not, interesting.
0: Not that there's any risk of it. I mean, to do it, it would cost $25 million. Right. <laughs> At least. And the Garden Club does not have that kind of money.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Can you tell us, now that we kind of know uh, the story of the house, I, I've I've been there once, um, moons ago, uh, you know, when we were in school, we went to visit. And um, I guess... Did, that, did you talk up on the roof? Did we go out on the roof?
0: Or the catwalk around the cupola?
1: I feel like we did. I think we saw pretty much everything. Okay. Good. That that's... we were allowed to see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I like to take people up there. It's 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 fun.
1: Yeah, I th- I think we did. I feel like that because they really let us see at that time. That's like, play, you know, they weren't letting anyone see any of those parts of the house. And they really, since we were students, I think they kind of gave us a little bit more leeway. It yes. took us in some other places that are normally closed off to the public.
0: Which is basically most of the house.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What is a typical day like for you, because you are the curator of the house, so what's a typical day like for you as a curator of a historic house museum?
0: Longwood is, of course, not the typical historic house museum. I've got much, inf- I've got influence, but no power. When we have to, you know, I've been doing, my first thing, that the first thing that I did, as I alluded to earlier, was the basement of Longwood is historically very, very damp, or in the winter when they turned on the gas heaters, very, very dry. I've, we've finally been able to get the humidity under control in the summer. We don't have 80 and 90% relative humidities in the morning when you come in. I've got it running between you know 50 and 60, which is where I want it to be. We got rid of the gas heaters, removed some of the questionable additions that were put in uh, after the Garden Club acquired the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, they acquired Sears Chandeliers. For all the main rooms. I mean, these are, they thought they looked period in the late 60s. What they probably, Sears donated them, so they're probably stock they couldn't put, move. But anyway, we got rid of those. And we're trying to bring the houses, I've been trying to bring the house back to its sort of period lighting feel. We've got, we're using just little, you know, either modified kerosene lanterns. or or just, you know, basically a a few little floor lights shining up to give indirect lighting. Because we know, although that Longwood was intended to have its own gas plant, it was never finished. It was never, the building might've been built, but it was never actually, none of the gas piping was ever installed. Although they ordered 1,500 yards of it. it. So Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, there's some good deal of gas piping there. So putting chandeliers in the rooms really they never had them and they certainly would have been electric ones and the effect you know people find people thought it was really too dim at first and then they've gotten used to it they say yeah this is i like the feel of it it feels really good of course being a um, house museum we always have catastrophes and new year's eve 2017 it was really cold in natchez uh it was it got down to like 16 degrees or something and even though we have a, a a dry pipe system for fire suppression, those hold water. And, well, one of the junctions in the top of the cupola held water, froze, three days later, cracked. Mm -hmm. And we had water pouring down the middle of the house. It was a real mess. We had serious plaster damage. Furniture was actually, since it all came down into the rotunda, we got lucky there. It didn't damage any of the portraits. We were actually pretty lucky, but it was a great chance to get rid of some of these features that had been added later. So we got rid of the, uh, the Sears lighting. We took up the conduits that were running on the floor, the primary floor above us. It makes the space much more usable now. You have no danger of tripping over everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we have you know, replaced the plaster. We took down some plaster uh, medallions that were put on. And I will give the, the people, who, when they put the plaster medallions on the house they did a really good job. They did it properly. The only reason we could tell that they were not originals was that they were being held in place by stainless steel bolts.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And that's just not something you found in 1860. Right. <laughs> but the design was good. I saved pieces of it, of course. I've got all the original plaster that I can find. And where were we going with this? I've completely lost my train of thought. Just... Crises, the... yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, I. you know, I'm a... a Jack of all, it's kind of like being at the Pete Hut house. I wear a lot of hats. Uh, you know, I work, I don't arrange for events, but I am usually there just to keep things under control when they happen. I give tours, which in some cases are, you know, kind of tedious. And most cases, are, if you have a big group, it's fun, but you know, I have one or two people and it's not really fun. And I work at the gift shop. I do everything, basically. I can do everything. I was filling in and we had two of our, Docents out ill after uh, you know front well in November and December, so I was you know just being a regular old, regular old docent as well. And sometime in there, I find time to get some research done, work with the Historic Natchez Foundation, and try to write some. But it's 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 difficult because mm-hmm. right right when you get flowing on a good writing, you gotta give a tour. So. <laughs>
1: and and they do they do special events like not just. But I'm trying to think, like, don't they do something cool for Halloween and like a harvest festival or something?
0: We do all of it. We Um, do lots of things. We have, okay, okay, we have the the Garden Club, the Pilgrimage Garden Club, this is ours, uh, has a Halloween carnival out there that strictly doesn't go to the house. It doesn't, they just use the grounds and they don't go in it. We have little Christmas, we're doing Christmas hay rides. Our big event for the past few years has been uh, a musical thing, uh, Longwood Afternoon, where we have local bands come in and they play on the grounds. Of course, the house rents out for weddings. Obviously, you have to choose the time of year when you do this, because obviously you can't cool the interior of Longwood. And it's not practical to try to heat it. And I know people would try to want to say, oh, we can put in those garden propane things there. And I would say, over my dead body. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) No. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, give me moments. I'm sure I'll hear something stupider later. But, you know, that is one of the stupider ideas I've ever heard. So we don't do it in the winter. We don't do it in the summer. But spring and fall are real busy times for weddings. We've started doing ghost tours. I've got a typical historian's opinion of ghost tours. Um, (laughs) Or I I do... But there's still a lot of weird things that happen, so I'm not going to totally discredit them, but I think if that's all your history is based on, if that's all your tour is based on his ghost, you really need to do some research. But fortunately, Longwood, a lot of it needs to be done, too. It was, it's one of those great failures of the HABS program. They were, they decided it was the most important building to document in, in, that, in Mississippi. It's, the HABS number for Longwood is MS1. Oh, Wow. (laughs) And the file contains five photographs. No. That is it. it. There are no measured drawings. There are still no measured drawings of Longwood. and If they had done them, they were planning to do them in 1939, but the last direct descendant of Holler and Julia Nutt living in the house, uh, Mr. Merritt Ward, died of pneumonia in 1939 before they could get the drawings done. So they were never done. And I would have loved... Oh, I would kill, you know, I can't have, I can't have Sloan's original drawings. Hab's drawings would have been the second best thing, but if we do them now, it's after the Garden Club has made changes, and that's what I've been trying to figure out, is what changes they made to the house. And I know they made changes. Most of it is, you know, they had all these finials for the brackets that had never been put on, so they put those on, which they shouldn't have done. They, um... Uh, Put in front windows and front door, and a front door on the southern exposed fa- facade. Okay, front door I can kind of see. We kind of need that. But the windows, they didn't even bother looking at what Sloan, they kind of look like what Sloan had in mind, but not exactly. They're, they're, they've got, they add gothic elements to the windows and the, in the uh, transom over the door that just bother me. I'm probably <laughs> the only person it would bother at least they made the windows so we could open them. They should have put the counterweights in. I mean, it's not like we don't have them. I mean, we ha- the window frames were put in in 1860, and they came with the counterweights and the ropes and everything and the pulleys. So the hardware was there. They just had to make the windows so you could attach the pulleys to it. But nope. Oh, one of my great, well, wow, sadnesses about Longwood is that so much was done that was well meaning, mm-hmm. but what we've lost, what parts of the historical record we've lost through good intentions, you
1: know, mm,
0: I hate to think about it. The one that bothers me still is when they cleaned out the
1: attic of the dependency. Oh, and things disappeared.
0: Oh, we know a lot disappeared. We have descriptions uh, from newspaper articles in the 1960s of pieces of, of trim work that were just stacked in corners. There's none of that left anymore. So we don't know. The one, uh, you know, dependency we call, or the slave quarters building, been up in the attic. And the only thing of interest I found up there were three pieces of a marble mantle. And if there were three pieces of a marble mantle up there, who knows what else was up there?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We have, there are a few things stuck in the dependency still that are of interest. We know that there was furniture that the family used that is still up there and rotting. Found some, uh, there's what are those things called? The um, They're little, little decorative bits over where you put the curtain rod. There's a term for that that I can't remember, but I'm not an interior person, so I don't know. But we, have, know. we have some of those, and I was working with uh, Ian Crawford, who's one of our classmates, and mm-hmm. he said that these were probably 1850-ish. So it's a surviving piece of the original Longwood house. It's just sort of sitting in a room in the dependency. Although some of them were put up, too, so we've got two of them in the parlor. And I was always wondering where they came from. They came from the original Longwood House. We also have a pocket door from the original Longwood House, which is fascinating. It's huge. I thought it was for Longwood, but I, I since looked at it and it's got Prussian. The nuts were using Prussian blue.
1: So, do you think that the? the, Do you think they were planning to put the big pocket door in the house? Or oh
0: yes, it's it's well, well they they used it to close off the front entrance from about eighteen sixty three to nineteen seventy one. So no. that was our that was our front door. Now the plans call for called for pocket doors. You have the central rotunda in Longwood and it's basically four octagons attached to that with four square wings. And the big octagonal rooms on the primary floor anyway are the entry hall, the drawing room, the dining room and what was called a family room. And the whole west side of Longwood is the part that confuses me the most. It's what doesn't match the plans we have. So I mean, there's a big arch in it, and it's a big arch window, and it doesn't match anything else in the house. And it's not something that Sloan designed because, or had his masons do, because it's asymmetrical. It was done by Natchez Craftsman, and it's got a crack in it, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but there would be pocket doors sectioning off the rotunda from the side room, so you could have you know, open them up for full access or close them off for privacy. There were going to be an interesting arrangement. We have what Sloan was using. The, he was using the windows in the main rooms as access points for the four verandas. And, you know, there'd be typical guillotine windows. You'd open the sash all the way up and walk out under it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, he, Mr. Sloan knew that he was going to have to have to put shutters on the windows and instead of having a conventional shutter that opened outward, which he thought was actually kind of ugly when it was opened on a window, you know, we've got the arch top windows. He thought, you know, you put a regular shutter on that. When you open it, the halves are kind of ugly. What Mr. Sloan did was he put, made adapted pocket, shor- pocket doors to being pocket shutters. Interesting. So the shutters open in, they were, were going to open into the walls and they'd be completely hidden when they were opened. Now, as completed... The shutters were going to be wood with movable louvers built in so that even when the shutters were closed, you could control the amount of light and air coming. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This is... hmm? Go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just... That's really interesting. I've never heard of something like that before. Do you know if that was sort of like an original idea he had? Has there been anything like that implemented somewhere else?
0: Not that I know of. I, I... The first time I found a mention of it is Slo- uh, in Sloan's writings is a, his book, Constructive Architecture, from 1858, and he has a diagram of how such shutters would work. And he said they were much better for security, and he pointed out the aesthetic advantages of them, and, but Longwood is the only place we know where he actually implemented them.
2: Hmm.
0: So, of course, then again, we don't actually know how many buildings Sloan built either, so the current estimate is about 160.
1: Wow, that's still a pretty decent amount.
0: Uh, yeah, he did a lot. Uh, yeah. I've always thought that. Uh, I've always thought that the sad part about Samuel Sloan is he was never a professionally trained architect, but he spent most of his life promoting the profession of architecture. And of course, since he wasn't professionally trained when the AIA formed up in the late 19th century, they sort of you know he's not a real architect. He was just a builder, and they neglected his you know they they sort of neglected studying him and, and Around 1960, people get interested. You know this Sloan guy; he did a lot of stuff. Maybe we should look into him. And by that time, his papers had been lost. So it's uh. just—it's uh, one of those great losses of of archival history.
1: Yeah, can you can you tell our listeners maybe some of the other buildings that he did that they might know of? Anything else famous that they might have heard of that he designed?
0: Well, he did a lot of work in well the. One, the building that he built directly after Longwood was the Asa Packer Mansion in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. And docent legend says that the parlor set in the Asa Packer House was originally intended to go in Longwood. We can't prove it, of course, but mm-hmm. the curator at the Asa Packer House and I've talked about it said, yeah, it's, it's definitely what Mr. Nutt had ordered, but you know, oh, it's the same style, but Hinkle's was turning out a lot of that stuff. We can't really say this was the exact, Hinkle's built for the nuts and never got to ship it down. So we don't really know. Uh, but it's a really interesting house in itself. Uh, Sloan did a lot of mental institutions. Oh, okay. Uh, he worked with Dr. Kirk Kirkbride to build institutions. And have you ever heard that? Uh, there's a joke I like to tell. Uh, Samuel Sloan designed 32 mental institutions and one nut house.
1: <laughs> no, I haven't heard that one.
0: <laughs> uh, well, the closest buildings to Natchez, uh, of course, is the Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa. And that was done, Sloan designed it, his brother Fletcher and his previous partner, Mr. Stewart, did the actual construction, and while they were there, they built for um, Senator Jimison a house, and that house is also still standing, it was built in 1860, Uh, it was ready by, it was ready in time, they didn't, you know, Mr. Jimison didn't change the plans much, and it still stands, that's the closest Sloan to us. He did, his last big project was the, uh, governor's mansion in North Carolina. You know, he's out of Philadelphia, but he ends up doing a good bit of work in the south. Yeah. And he moved to North and later in life he lived in North Carolina. So it's, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, especially since he's coming from up north, but he's he seemed to have a pretty good grasp of I guess the the weather and the temperatures and and building houses that would maintain their cool even down down here in the heat in the humidity, oh, yeah. it sounds uh, like
0: he, he was pretty uh, you know, Sloan was not you know I think he was I don't know, I think he's brilliant, but then again, I'm biased. I mean, I, I work in the most magnificent the most magnificent Sloan house ever designed,
2: mm-hmm. never
0: finished, but it was designed. and Longwood is long is a great Longwood is a great place for an architectural historian. The house has never been seriously studied. And uh, it's a great oversight. I'm really walking on fresh ground.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like they did a good job picking you for this position. Um, well, yeah,
0: when I, I was hired by the previous curator of the garden club, and I said, okay, I'll, I'd love to come work for you. I just won't work in Stanton Hall.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I can understand that. I could, that would probably drive me crazy too.
0: It's not that Stanton Hall is. Uninteresting architecturally, it's just that the one interesting feature about it, you can't see. You know, you look at it, it's a big Italianate house, even though they call it Greek Revival. And it's got, of course, it's got a cupola on top. Well, what's interesting about the cupola uh, on Stanton Hall is that it's masonry.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, usually these things are built of wood because it's lighter. Well, the one on Stanton Hall is brick. And hidden under the roofline of Stanton Hall, there's a series of flying buttresses that hold it up. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. But you never get to see it on the tours and they don't talk about it because they're all about the furniture.
2: Right.
1: I I do remember that from the tour we went on. We didn't get to see anything cool on that one. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think you kind of hit like all of my points that I was going to try to ask you about. Some of the weird the issues and obstacles that you have, some of the really exciting parts of what you do, but uh, I just wanted to ask if there's anything coming up. Like, are you working on anything exciting for the future of the house? Obviously, I guess besides the book that you're currently yeah, I work working on. Yeah,
0: on my book. Um, you know, from Tulane and Gene, I learned the value of getting universities involved with your historic house, and the. Museum studies class at Louisiana Tech. I built up a relationship with. I'm trying to get the Tulane School of Architecture to come up and do some work. Mimi says that Mimi Miller, the direct former director of the Historic Natchez Foundation, says that they're coming up to do a project documenting outbuildings, which I will be. They're going to do Longwood's outbuildings, which is good because that's actually doable. Mm-hmm. Doing the main house, I don't know. It's out of the scope of a university. I mean, you'd have to work. I mean, it's. It's a huge house. Right. I don't know how they would do it. So I'm looking forward to that. I've been working with, I've been had a, we had a little reception last May for uh, Joseph Gill, who was the head of the Slave Dwellings Project. And I enjoyed that. It was very well attended. So there's a lot of things that we we have to, you know, too much of the Natchez interpretation has been, I hate to say it, uh, a neo-Confederate fantasy land. And I'm trying to get, you know, that's so outdated. It's Mm -hmm. gone with the wind. It's not true. So we're actually, I I will brag on my garden club a little bit. We are actually working on getting, adding the the African-American side of the story to our houses. Now, at Stanton Hall, we know the dependencies where the slave quarters were. They were destroyed in 1915. So there's really not much they can do. But Longwood, we have the slave quarters. We have the carriage house. We have, well, we even have the privy. Uh, we have the kitchen, or most of the, we have some of the kitchen left. So there's parts we can interpret. And I, I think there's some plastering in the basement of the dependency. Actually, it's in the room below my office. That's original w- when the room was being used as a slave court, as for the indentureds. Yeah, whatever the politically correct term is. I can never... <laughs> I think the, the pol- uh, what is it, enslaved workers? Well, I think that's trying to sugarcoat it a little bit. I just call them what they were. They were that it's they were slaves. It's not a pretty word. Right. It's not a pretty it was not a pretty instant institution. So I mean trying to make it sound less offensive doesn't work for me. But anyway, I I'm, I'm happy. I have made a discovery. I found the name of one of the enslaved workers who worked at Longwood. Wow. His, his name was Tom. Now, I found him purely by accident. I was just flipping, you know, doing Newspapers online, it's a great thing, the historical newspapers. I found an ad placed by Holler Nutt for a runaway slave named Tom. It's November of 1862, so it's, you know, he's got a good chance of, of actually getting to federal lines, but he, he was working as a carpenter in Natchez. And the only thing Holler was needing a carpenter for in Natchez was Longwood. Right. So the fact that Tom certainly worked on the house, you know, it seems not disputable. And, of course, we have Frederick, too, who is our big mystery man. I guess I should go into Frederick. It's not really historic preservation, but it's an interesting story. We have a painting of one of the Nutt family slaves. His name is Frederick. We know very little about him. um, But what's interesting is that we have a painting of him. And in the state of Mississippi, there are two life-size portraits of enslaved African-Americans. Wow, So it, it have... doesn't
1: seem like it would be very common. No, it, it probably, I mean,
0: I think it, probably, it, it isn't. I mean, there are two, and we have Frederick's portrait. There's a lot of docent legend about him. I've been trying to figure out who Frederick was. Now, we've got you know, children's letters refer to him as Uncle Frederick. And I like to tell my tours that, you know, that may be biological, I think, Frederick and Hollernut were half-brothers, but I can't find any documentation to prove this. But mm. there's a strong resemblance between Frederick and Hollernut's father, which is probably getting a little bit gossipy for historic preservation, but, you know, <laughs> there it is. We all gossip a little bit. But he's, you know, he's one of our more important... He's our most important artifact. And we have... I'm trying to get the kitchen stabilized. Uh, We've got to eat the slave quarters fixed. Because when the garden club decided to convert the dependency building into a pub. They ran air conditioning ducts through the basement slave quarters rooms. And those are the ones that are the most intact. Because I think the history of our dependency is that it was probably built between 1830 and 1840. But most of what you see now is from 1857. Mm -hmm. Because we know the nuts remodeled the building to use as living space. Mm -hmm. But if you look on the ground floor that's dug into the hill, the windows are arched, and they're 12 over 12s. So it's a much older glass pattern than what's in the upper part of the house. The windows in the upper part of the house are square, all squared, but the ones in the basement are arched. So it, it looks like the basement level of the dependency is older than most of it. But mm-hmm. I can't find a discernible line in the bricks. And ongoing projects, another one we have to do is, well, I need to, I've gotten the humidity under control in the basement. We have to stabilize the retaining wall around the house. It's a fine example uh, for the preservation technology class of everything that can go wrong in a masonry wall. Right. Um, <laughs> and the privy, which is, of course, it's the provisional, it's the you know, proverbial brick one. One of the walls is beginning to bulge a little bit, so we need to get that stabilized. But, um, and then, of course, I'd love to get the buildings documented, but that's really my only upcoming, upcoming projects.
1: Okay. Well, that, that sounds like plenty of stuff anyway, so... Yeah,
0: I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not you know, free to roam the streets very much.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty good segue into the next couple of questions I had. I did want to ask you about your current house that you live in, because it's just so... It's so nice. And I saw that you recently won an award. I guess it was from the Historic Natchez I,
2: Foundation?
0: Yeah, I won, a, uh, I got, won the... Uh, a preservation Award for uh, 2018 for my restoration of this house,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and if you hear something, a cat. Uh, Julia wants to add her bits to the uh, interview, so uh, <laughs> you may hear uh, some added uh, noises. But yeah, uh, the house itself was built around 1850. Actually, uh, that's the best we can come up with. It was built by a uh, pharmacist or druggist who came down from. New York and Pennsylvania, or Pennsylvania, we're not sure which. The 1850 census says one thing, the 1860 census says another. So it's from one of those two northeastern states. And he, it was a typical, you know, you know, urban city house. I mean, it had the ground floor is, uh, was commercial. It was, it's where he had his pharmacy or, or drug den or whatever they called it, or chemistry lab, you know, who knows. But, but the upper floors are, are residential. So it's got, it's a very simple floor plan. Uh, It's got, you know, basically two, it's a side hall townhouse. It's got large rooms. But what's interesting about it is the style. It's built in 1850s, but you could, but all the detailing is basically 1830s, except for the doors. And it has the most amazing cast iron lintels over the front door and front windows. And it's amazing. I just, look, they are fabulous. Sorry. I'm going on about my own house. (laughs) Uh, I think the the most difficult bit I've had, I've, you know, I got a restore. Well, I had to undo some things that were done by the previous owner who was trying to restore the house and make it a multi-unit, you know, apartments or things. Mm -hmm. And that would just be a disgrace for this house. And so I had to do some repairs. One of the interesting things that he got by the planning commission was that he added a second balcony to the front of the house. Now the house has two balconies. Now Uh, originally it had one, but now it had two. And part of my restoration work was trying to match the ironwork that was originally on the house and what we have a sample of on the main steps. And I had to have that all custom made in Alabama, but I have ironwork on the house, and, you know, the, the gates that, are, that open, it gives me a little bit of privacy. I've got a sunken garden in the front of it that needs plants. It, all in all, it was a, it was a great improvement. As Mimi said, the uh, Mimi Miller again, the expert, the ex head of the historic Natchez Foundation. It is the grandest townhouse that was ever built of this type in Natchez, and it survives. And I've got it; it's mine.
1: Yeah, and it's beautiful <laughs> too. It's very, it is it's it very is beautiful.
0: Yeah, and we actually have our dependency uh, left as well. Uh, it's now I use it as guest rooms, but I have the original dependency is still uh, attached. Mm-hmm. A lot of original. I mean, the house had a lot of the original features still intact. I mean, I'm in mean, down down in my basement study, and that is I kept the exposed. I mean, the joists are obviously lathed and plastered over, but I kept the joist where exposed joist where I could. I kept the brickwork exposed. I put a uh, non a permeable sealant on it to keep the you know, the crumbs off, mm-hmm. and it, it just you know it gives it a great feel. Cause you get the feel of the history of it down here, and of course the mantel pieces, I. Salvage that from the upstairs upper floors. This house has two wonderful Egyptian Greek key black marble mantels, and it originally had four of them. But uh, by 1907, this building had become this, the Natchez Chamber of Commerce, and they converted the upper uh, floors to a ballroom.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So they knocked out the center part of the wall and they took out the mantle. So I've got some very nice, I had some very nice. Wooden mantles from the turn of the 20th century. Well, I still have the wooden mantles. They're down, down in the basement. Uh, They had been painted white, and that was uh, a remarkable sin because they were cherry. They're now back to their original finish, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic.
1: Yeah. It's a a lovely space. It is. Yeah, for everybody that's listening, we James took us on a on a tour the last time my husband and I were in Natchez. So, even though he was feeling a little under the weather, he still let us come I had by. And, yeah, <laughs> he still let us come by and check out the house. And neither one of us caught it from him, so it it all turned out okay.
0: Yeah, I, w- I don't know if it was contagious. I just had no voice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So I think I'd like to just move forward to my last couple of questions that I kind of try to ask everybody. Um, and one of my favorite things to ask is, what is your favorite thing about preservation?
0: Ooh, Well, it's basically the same answer that I have, that I had when I was an archivist. We're try- it's that, I try- that I'm trying to preserve the stuff of history. I mean, with an archivist, it's papers and books. I've just moved up in scale. But it's the same principle. And, you know, that's my answer. I don't know how good it is, but that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's my phil- good answer. that's my philosophy, and I'm sticking with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so on the other side, on the flip side of that coin, what is your least favorite thing?
0: I don't know if this is going to sound wrong or not. I've always said in preservation, you can do it right or you can do it cheaply. Mm-hmm. and far too many people do it cheaply. And that just strikes me as, it's a blow. And know, no, don't do that. You're going you're gonna to be sorry in the long run. And, you know, I've got an example of that from Longwood. Now, the columns on Longwood are wood. Sloan designed them that way. It's kind of interesting. They were largely done mechanically. But the columns themselves are the, what you see, the decorative part, the, the Corinthian fluting, is just a skin the support the structural part of the columns were f- big cypress pillars inside them okay and so you look at them you don't see it you, you know but it's it's there or it should be there well sometime in the garden club's renovations they replaced the outer skin but didn't put the post back in and we nearly had the front porch of the house collapse oh my gosh and i i worry you know we got that one, but I can't really tell how many other ones we didn't get, but that was the only one that was noticeably sagging, and we still haven't quite gotten it straight yet, but oh well, it's not going to fall down.
1: yeah, that's rough i I don't I, I, I yeah, I'm not sure like I can't even think of a reasoning why you would do that and not put the the main support back into it. It I don't know. I mean, kind of silly. <laughs> that's,
0: uh, I, uh, there's some advanced level of foolishness that I can't quite comprehend. Mm-hmm. And I was being complimentary. I was being uh, I was guarding my words when I said foolishness.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I am totally we're fine to make, with we're diplomatic to make this,
0: answers. We were trying to make this a PG podcast. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I also like to ask people about their preservation pet peeves, but that kind of goes along the same kind of stuff.
0: That's my, uh, my dislikes and my pet peeves are the same.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be pretty similar for everybody. So.
0: Also, you know, well-meaning people who are not professionals. Yeah. You know, like, you know, it's, again, that goes back to being an archivist. Though. We'll just, we don't need any of this stuff. We'll just get rid of it. Uh, no. What have you just gotten rid of? You don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Exactly. Okay, so I think um, my last question is going to be what I, I ask everybody. What advice do you have for someone wanting to get involved with preservation?
0: You have to be committed. It's, it's never going to be it, – it's a vocation. It's not a profession. Uh, you have to be called to it. It's kind of like the priesthood because you're never going to make a lot of money doing it or mm-hmm. very rarely will make a lot of money doing it. You have to love it. and you know, I'm sure everyone has said that, but it's, it's still true. Uh, if you can find your niche, grab it. You know, I certainly I, I am being paid far less than I than I'm you know I'm worth at for the for the garden club. But the comp the side po- the other part is, I have Longwood. I can play with it. It's mine. Mm-hmm. I like to say that Longwood is my house. The garden club. I just let the garden club use it. <laughs> Eventually, I'll get them to realize that. But uh, we're working on it.
1: Yeah well it's i mean it you're you're the main caretaker so it, yeah I, I i mean,
0: i am the uh the the professional uh, and i know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, i am not a well meaning amateur well okay. I'm well meaning i'm a well meaning professional yeah uh, <laughs> i guess a a a malignant professional could do a lot of damage, but i'm not that
1: yeah but you can tell when you talk about the stories of the house you can tell that you love it and that I think is the most important thing.
0: Oh, I mean, how can you not? It's you know, well, I mean, if you have if you've never seen Longwood, you're missing out. Uh, it is unique in the United States.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And I'm gonna share some, some pictures too. Um, when we get close to airing this episode, I'm gonna put some pictures on Instagram and stuff, so people who who may not be familiar with it, they can get some ideas of what it looks like. Definitely that picture you took last year when it snowed, uh, and it was so pretty in the snow. I just love that one. That's one of my favorite ones.
0: Yes, uh, I I had to. You know, I got up very early. I I woke up. You know, my feline alarm clock woke me up early. <laughs> And um, I just drove out to Longwood. I got there about 7, 7.30 before anyone else had gotten there and, you know, took pictures of the snow when it was fresh and, you know, no one had been walking through it. Mm-hmm. So it looked fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was beautiful. I always, I always, I have that one saved in my, my Instagram thing so I can go back and look at it because it's so pretty. All right. Well, I think that's it for all of the questions that I had. Thank you very much for being on the show today, James. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do come up to Datchez again. We're always, uh, we're always welcome.
1: Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.